This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Last time I preached here was in March, and we looked at Galatians chapter 1. We looked at Paul, who wrote these letters. Paul, Paul's a tough guy. Well, as a new believer, and I got to know Paul, I thought he was kind of grumpy, you know. He wasn't trying to make very many friends. But that wasn't his job. God gave him a job, and he picked a tough guy to do it. He was going from the older Jewish law, and he had tremendous amounts of knowledge about that, and presenting the gospel of Christ. And he had a huge wave of opposition from people known as Judaizers who were bent on a works-based religion where you had to be circumcised and you had to restrict yourself from certain foods or eat certain foods. And, and there was lots of rules, and Paul was bringing this freedom message, and they weren't very happy about that. And they were on his heels like hounds. They did not want him preaching this. So everywhere he went, they were... They were coming after him, but Paul knew the truth, and boy, he stood up for it. There was no way he was backing down. <clears throat> so that's a little bit about Paul, and that's a person we're reading about here. So we're going to open in prayer, and then we're going to read from the Word of God, and then I'm going to do my very best to ex exposit this to you and help you understand the this incredible purpose that Paul had in this writing of this letter to the Galatians. Let's pray. Father, we bow our head today before you. We praise you and thank you again for your word. We pray at this time, Lord, as we read your word, that it's revealed to us clearly and our, and our hearts grasp it and understand it and our eyes see it. And that we would take this message, Lord, wherever we go, this gospel throughout the week, and share it with people around us, by what we say and by what we do and how we respond, Lord. How we respond to perhaps opposition or, or praise or any communication we might have with the people around us, whether at work or at school or at home. And remember how important it is to preach the gospel accurately and clearly. So we ask again, Lord, at this time that you would be with us in that we would be careful to examine your word and understand it. We give you praise for this in your magnificent name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. Let's read this from the ESV. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed amongst the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential had nothing to do with me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10 says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In chapter 1, Paul established that his apostleship and gospel came from God, not people. Here, Paul demonstrates that both his apostleship and the gospel were validated by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He presents this to ease the minds of the Galatians regarding the legitimacy of apostleship and the gospel message. The meeting that Paul describes in this passage likely corresponds with the Jerusalem Council. And you'll see this in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. And Paul parallels this, these two uh, Corinthians or Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, a lot with Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. It is unclear whether these verses or these 14 years are in addition to the three years Paul mentions in Galatians 1 to 18, or whether they include them. Paul hadn't been to Jerusalem in 14 years. Barnabas was Paul's mentor and companion during his first and second missionary journeys. During both journeys, they traveled through Galatia together. Paul mentions Barnabas to add credibility to his story. Barnabas witnessed the approval of Paul's gospel message by the apostles in Jerusalem. This is a critical piece of information because the apostles witnessed Christ's ministry and knew the gospel firsthand, directly from Christ. So if they approved Paul's ministry, it had to line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ that they personally knew. There could be no gray area or misrepresenting the gospel. It needed absolute accuracy, and Barnabas witnessed the apostles' approval of Paul's ministry. Titus was a Greek Gentile and companion of Paul. He's mentioned to demonstrate that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem did not pressure him to be circumcised. This would have discredited any claim that the leaders in Jerusalem required the Gentiles be circumcised. We'll read more about this circumcision in a bit here. Uh, I went up and set before them, though privately before, those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim amongst the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, I went up. This attests to Paul's motivation for traveling to Jerusalem. He was responding to God's direction, not human invitation. He was concerned with aligning his ministry to the Gentiles with the work of the Jerusalem apostles. In essence, he was not the rogue minister that his accusers 
proclaimed he was. And set before them, or Paul explained the gospel. He preached to the Gentiles so the Jerusalem leaders could give approval of his ministry. Laid out before who, it says. I looked further at who, Peter, James, and John, Galatians 2.9. These men were considered influential because they were among the original apostles who ministered with Jesus during his earthly life and were key leaders in the early church. Paul the Apostle, yes, Paul, Paul went to the most important leaders for confirmation of his gospel message. Peter, James, and John. Next it says, The gospel that I proclaim amongst the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running, or had not run in vain. Philippians 2.16 says, Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This imagery is about faithfully living the gospel message. In this case, Paul hoped that the Jerusalem leader, leaders would prove him to be faithful by approving of his law-free gospel. If the leaders had required Gentiles to be circumcised, then Paul's gospel would have been discredited. Galatians chapter 1 told us about the false teachers and the false gospels. We as believers must be ever on guard to protect ourselves and our families from any distortion of the gospel. Specifically in this chapter, about anyone adding works to the gospel message. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That's not just a song. That's a priceless guide and a warning to be ever vigilant about the true gospel. The Judaizers were trying to incorporate circumcision, circumcision and they were forceful about it. But Paul never backed down one bit. He knew the gospel, and there was no one who was going to add or subtract to it. Paul's account of the faithfulness to the gospel serves as the basis of a later appeal he makes to the Galatians. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Galatians 2.3 says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Since Titus was Greek, he would not have been circumcised. His presence at this meeting supports Paul's claim that he fully disclosed his gospel message to the apostles. The question about whether non-Jewish believers needed to be circumcised for salvation or acceptance into the Christian community already had been resolved, hence the apostles would have not compelled Titus to be circumcised. So what was the big controversy about circumcision? Genesis 17 says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. The Bible explanation for this commandment states quite clearly that the circumcision acts as an outward physical sign of the eternal covenant between God and the Jewish people. But, 
Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. We can be relieved that circumcision of the body is not required for salvation. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. When it was circumcision of the body, a small piece of the flesh was removed. But when the heart is circumcised, sin is removed. A much more important act of God that heals and restores man unto God. So men are freed from the act of physical circumcision from then on, because they know now the intention of the circumcision of the heart. It has much more significant meaning than an external act, but a much deeper internal act. Let's move on. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. That means back to following the written Jewish law in order to be wholly acceptable before God. Circumcision, eating certain foods, etc. were some of the Jewish laws that the Jews practiced and enforced. There were many more, and Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders about them many times, calling them whitewashed tombs. These individuals likely were suspicious of Paul because of his freedom message. Paul refers to them in order to draw a parallel between his story and the circumstances of Galatians. The Judaizers who have infiltrated the Galatians represent as much threat to the gospel as the false brothers Paul mentions here. And we learned uh, about the false teachers in Might enslave us uh, indicates why the false brothers spied on the meeting between Paul and the leaders. In mentioning slavery, Paul anticipates the central theme of the following section, chapter 3, verse 23, to chapter 4, verse 11, in contrast to the efforts of the false brothers. Galatians 3, 23 to 29 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise, and it further explains up to chapter 4, verse 11. Plain and simple, Paul's gospel brings freedom from legalism. Further on, we read in Galatians 5.1, for freedom 
Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He, Paul, kept telling them, do not return to the yoke of slavery. You know, we ask why. Why would they return to the yoke of slavery? Well, people are creatures of habit. Things that are familiar. Even bad things. Sometimes they're familiar and people will stay with it even if it hurts them. We're so blessed to be blessed with regeneration. A new birth or born again. Our eyes have been opened by God's mercy and through grace. He has called us into the fold. With a new heart and a renewing of our minds, we don't have to return to slavery of the law. Trying to be acceptable in God's sight with sacrifices and heavy laws that were not needed once Christ came. We've been released and set free. This is a great gift from God and at a horrendous price, the suffering and death of his holy sinless and blameless son who will one day return for his own the elect to spend eternity in his glory forever and ever amen all you need to know is that Christ was born a virgin birth lived a sinless life and died for you a brutal death and rose again in three days ascended up to heaven and will return one day as the king of kings and gather his own you believe this? Then believe this, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Well, let's start with the coming wrath of God. God will not strive with man forever. The day is coming and his word will be fulfilled. You can be sure of that. Galatians 2.5 says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul intends for his response to the false brothers to serve as a model for the Galatians in their present situation. Do not submit to them. They will enslave you with their law. This phrase refers to the integrity of the message of the gospel and its implications for Christian living. In particular, Paul seems to have in mind the truth that the gospel frees believers from the law and its requirements, including dietary laws and circumcision. For Paul, the truth of the gospel is more than an abstract concept. It's a new life of faith and love in Christ, which is absolute freedom. Freedom that Paul is preaching. Verse 6 says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Those who seemed influential refers to the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Paul recognizes the authority of the Jerusalem leaders, but does not grant them special status on account of their role in the early ministry of Jesus. The false brothers may have considered the Jerusalem leaders to have great authority because of this association. But Paul insists that the Jerusalem leaders approved of the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. 
So if you're not Jewish, you should know that you are a Gentile. And I'm pretty sure that's everybody in this congregation because I haven't seen any Jews here. Well, I'm a Kaju, but that's not the same thing. I like saying that once in a while, just to let you know. <coughs> this statement is confirmed by the fact that they did not require Titus, a Gentile, to be circumcised. Galatians 2.7 says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Peter was recognized as the apostle of the Jews. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem recognized that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was just as valid as Peter's ministry to the Jews. Nonetheless, Peter did preach the gospel to the Gentiles as seen in Acts 10. Some people had problems with Peter's ministry to the Gentiles. <clears throat> named Cornelius. Luke calls them those of the circumcision in Acts 11. But once Peter presented the reason for his ministry to them, they recognized that God likewise granted the Gentiles repentance leading to life. Acts 11.18 which says, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You know that repentance is a gift from God? I'm sure you've heard this many times since you're sitting in this church today that repent and be baptized. Some of us might have even struggled with that word repent. I have a hard time giving up some of my vices and my habits. But we can read here in God's word that Repentance is a gift from God. And you can mark this in your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Have you ever wondered where that desire comes from? Trust God. He's the deliverer. Ask him for that desire. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You think that God wants you to repent? You can count on it. It's very clear he wants this for you even says in Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's God's holy word and a promise to you. Chapter 2, verse 8 is in brackets like a reminder or a note to the reader that says, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me or mine to the Gentiles. That is, made the preached word efficacious to conversion. Now, you never hear me use that word. 
It's not in my vocabulary. I don't talk like that. So I borrowed it. <clears throat> it made sense and it fits with the description of how important the Word of God is to conversion. The Word is very powerful. And not only by sensible miracles, but by the might of the Holy Spirit. So all three of these things are apparent in our conversion. The reading of hearing of God's Word. Miracles, perhaps, you've seen as God works in our lives. And the Holy Spirit. If you look back where you began, you'll see these three laid out during that time. And even until now, while you daily are in the Word. God is doing things in your life that you would say are miracles. And if you've ever been convicted of a sin or reminded of Scripture, then you know the Holy Spirit is continuously working in you. So yes, the Word is effective and will continue to be so. So I encourage you to maintain that discipline of daily study and reading God's Word as a way of life. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Pillars. Let's look at that word. This metaphor indicates the support of an integral role that James, Peter, and John fulfilled as apostles in the early church. Matthew 16, 18 is a great verse to amplify this. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the job of a pillar. A pillar often has the job of holding up a heavy burden, unmoving, unswerving, just steady as she goes day in and day out. And people mostly count on pillars to hold those heavy loads without complaining. A description of the role of a father in the home. The spiritual leader is often the pillar also. Obviously, if that pillar is removed, it could have some serious effects. We see an epidemic of homes today without fathers in the world today. And it's no joke. Children are growing up without the benefits of a father as a spiritual leader. And women are making their way through life without a husband. A pillar or a support system. The person who God made to protect, provide, support with godly direction and a strong spiritual guidance. And it's a tragedy worldwide. Not just here, but everywhere. Every country you can look at, every societal circumstance, every group of people where you see this father disappearing. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 says, this is, this is dad's job. And these 
words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This was primarily the role of the father. But I would say mother must be on board also so she doesn't contradict the healthy, godly teaching of the father. I'll say it this way. Fathers, be the pillar of your home. That's your job. If you're not sure what your job is, you just heard it from your brother Ed. we see here say the right hand of fellowship the Bible this act indicates the acceptance of Paul's apostleship and gospel message by the apostles in Jerusalem as well as the recognition of their partnership as ministers if the Galatians were formerly concerned that Paul might be a rogue apostle, they no longer needed to be. Paul had full support of the pillars of Jerusalem all along. The Jerusalem apostles came to recognize that every apostle has their own area of ministry. So what is the meaning of the right hand of fellowship? A hand clasp with the right hand given in some Christian communions in token of the fellowship of the church, occasional ceremonies as a formal public, formal public welcome of new members by the pastor of a congregation or as the installation or ordination of a minister. So it looks like the right hand of fellowship is a sign of agreement or a symbol of affirmation and would be a great honor. I remember Mr. Eastbrook standing up and reaching out towards Pastor Josh when we all voted for him to be our new senior pastor. Mr. Giesbrick was and is one of our elders in our church and still is. This was a sign of acceptance by the elders on behalf of the whole congregation. There was great discussion and lots of prayer by many members who spent lots of time considering this great responsibility. And we had to choose the best man for the position to be filled. No small task and plenty of concern for the spiritual well-being of Elk Point Baptist Church. But with all that considered, we chose Pastor Josh, and the handshake was given. The right hand of fellowship, I believe, was even mentioned by Mr. There was a time in history that a handshake was as good as a signed document. Those days are long gone, and there are few men would give a handshake with that much value. But as a believer, we know the value of that right hand fellowship. All right, final verse.
verse here as we come near the end, Galatians 2.10. Only as they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The leaders likely encouraged Paul to help the economically impoverished believers in Jerusalem as Paul continued to focus on his role as the apostle to the Gentiles. They did not want him to forget the Jewish believers in need. Paul says, the very thing I was also eager to do. This expresses Paul's shared desire to contribute to the poor in Jerusalem church. Paul frequently mentions in his letters his effort to raise funds among the Gentiles to support the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Romans 15, 25-28 says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Acadia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Paul also knew that remembering the poor represented a further opportunity to unite Gentile and Jewish believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he started, as he had started, so, so he would, should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Isn't that beautiful? To excel in the act of grace, you've been shown much grace from God. Sins forgiven, eternal life, a renewing of your mind, the gift of repentance, a new hope, a desire to please God, knowing you are able to approach the throne of grace at any time and with any burden or concerns, freely to speak with God, the all-powerful and almighty God of the universe. And Jesus made that all possible for you. Now there's some good news. I encourage you, like Paul, to continue daily in your walk to share the good news. It's great news. It's the greatest news you could ever have to share with anyone. Ever. Like our catechism says, glorify God and enjoy Him all the days of your life. The big change is, you have eternal life. And it began the day your eyes were opened from the grace of God. Again, let's rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this day and this time in your word as we've read your message and seen the work that Paul did and the work that you've given us to do. How we are free to worship you and free to live our lives knowing you are in control of all things, our sovereign God, almighty, all-powerful. Yet you've opened our eyes and our hearts to you 
who you are through your word. We thank you for the men that went before us, bringing this gospel to each and every one of us that have it today and are able to bring it to those around us, near us, starting with our families, moving into our extended families and our co-workers and our homes and our schools and our friends and our neighbors, wherever we may be. This word, Lord, edifies us and builds us up and let us be an encouragement to one another as we perhaps have struggles. We see the world falling down all around us. Let us be encouragement and a light lifting one another up, knowing full well that we have a bigger picture, an encourager, one who stands in heaven and prays for us. Even when we forget, Lord, even when we forget the things that are happening in our lives, and yet faithfully our Savior continues to pray for us, to draw us ever near, to feed us, to give us the spiritual nourishment that we need. As we read your word, Lord, let us continue to be fed and fed well. This word that you've given us that we've read today, I ask that you would bless it. I ask that we would take it with us as we step out this week and strive to be that light and to have even more of that food and prepare, prepare us, Lord, to be a light for the people around us. I thank you so much, Lord, for this time that you set aside for us. For the mercy you've shown us and the grace that's extended to each believer. Pray for your blessing on this day, Father, wherever we may be, wherever we may may go, that we heard your word and we were filled. We praise you again for your Son and our Lord and our Savior in Jesus' name.